0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage.
2: Bridget Donovan has been going to school online for the past year, but now... Bridget's back in the building.
3: I feel like I haven't been to school since like 300 years ago. I'm going to be like a freshman again, all
2: lost. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. Bridget brings us back to school. Hello. Plus, author Jennifer De Leon reflects on language and heritage in her new book of essays.
4: At our deepest core, we're connected to emotions and memories and feelings in a specific language, and we can't choose that.
2: And the story of losing a dependable Vermont neighbor to COVID nineteen.
5: Yeah, we had like the typical lovely neighbor experience. Hey, I'm in Burlington. I might not have unplugged my coffee maker.
2: Could you go check? It's Next.
0: Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
2: I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. We know more students are trickling back into school buildings across New England. To start today's show, we wanted to take that journey with them. Tori Bedford of GBH News has been following a high school student from Framingham, Massachusetts. The student spent a year at home, in isolation. Now she takes us back to the classroom.
3: Hi, my name is Bridget Donovan, and I am a senior at Framingham High School. And since my school has shut down, Um, last March, this year has been a crazy ride. Mm
6: Let's get to the latest numbers on the coronavirus pandemic here in Massachusetts. The numbers remain high. The
7: superintendent deciding to go all remote.
8: Now that cases are climbing. Just the latest school to take some steps back. What a
1: tough, strange year it's been. The governor is saying with cases falling, now is a good time to talk about getting kids back in the classroom. It's been a long road of virtual learning. And
0: the idea behind all of this is to get the
1: kids
6: back into the school buildings. Back to school becoming a reality in Massachusetts.
9: Since Bridget started remote school, we've spent the past year talking about everything from isolation. I don't skate anymore. I don't do theater. I don't really see my friends as much. The torture of endless Zoom classes.
3: All right, let's go to class.
9: Applying to college during a
3: pandemic. I'm submitting applications to colleges that I might not visit until I attend them mental health struggles. There's nothing I really look forward to anymore because everything that I used to look forward to is now all canceled. And pretty much everything else. It's just,
9: it's like, it's a lot. It's been a lot. And now, finally, Bridget is returning to school. A little taste of normalcy.
3: I feel like I haven't been to school since, like, three hundred years ago. I can't even remember the last time I walked down the halls of Framingham High School. <laughs> I'm going to be like a freshman again, all lost. Bridget
9: wanted to take us with her on her first day back. Good
8: morning. Good morning. How you doing? Good. Happy to be back? Yeah. We are so
6: happy to have all of you back.
3: I will say it was kind of really hard to focus I guess. It was definitely a different atmosphere. <laughs> Bridget starts her first and only
9: in-person class of the day psychology. It's just Bridget one other student and her teacher Ms. Sequenzia. All right um listen how are you feeling about this test?
3: Oh um honestly
9: be honest.
3: Uh, really not well. (laughs) Really not well.
9: For any senior, it's hard to focus on maintaining your grades, especially when you spend all day alone in your room behind a computer screen. Sequencia seems to get this, and the test can wait
3: for another day. Let me take a look at your grade real quick. Um, Bad. Bad. I've... I've, like, started every reading guide in the notebook. I've started everything. Have I finished it? No. Yes. <laughs> That's, like, my problem It's just um, finishing an assignment. But yeah. I started everything.
9: Bridget isn't the only student who's been struggling to keep her grades up during the pandemic. Jeff Convery, the vice principal at Framingham High, says the adjustment has caused struggles for almost
10: every student at the school. The number of Fs that we see... Um, are higher than we had seen prior to remote learning. I think like anything, this even if for no other reason, just this shift in trying to learn a new way of learning has been challenging for even the strongest students.
9: Still, Convery says about half the students at Framingham have opted to stay fully remote. The roughly 1,300 students who are coming in person are divided into two groups. It's a totally different environment. No crowded hallways, COVID testing in the cafeteria, Everyone wearing a mask. But some things seem to easily fall back into place, like the consistency of the bell. Hello. Saying hi in the hallways.
3: Hello. Bridget
9: acting as a mentor to help freshmen find their classes. Oh, yes, yeah,
3: so you were actually in the wellness center. It's my responsibility in case you get lost, so...
9: After her classes are over, when most students have left the building, Bridget bursts through the doors of what was once her second home, the high school auditorium, and runs up to the stage.
3: Oh, <sighs> here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. My favorite part. My favorite part. It really, it's such a weird feeling to be back here, but it's the best feeling. The best feeling ever. Like, unreal. So amazing to be... Even though I'm not doing anything. So freaking amazing. <laughs> I'm so
9: happy. Bridget used to run lights for shows. Now she finds herself missing even the most
3: monotonous parts of the job. Like just being back here and seeing it on, it's like nostalgic. <laughs> Putting gels in and focusing them. Never really used to like them. but Because <laughs> they were so tedious and kind of boring <laughs> and slow. But it's like... You don't realize, like, how much you miss something until it's gone. I used to hate it, but now I would do, like, anything to get it back.
9: (laughs) In some ways, it seems like what should have been the greatest year of her high school tech theater career was taken away from her. But there's a new energy in just being here,
3: knowing that things are changing. You know, honestly, I think if I've gotten through this year, I can get through anything at this point. If anything, I feel stronger. I feel like I got through the first year of COVID. I don't want to go through more, but I'm ready if it, if it happens. Right now,
9: standing on the stage, shrouded in purple light, Bridget isn't thinking about the future. Right now, she's just here, in person, ready to see what comes
2: tomorrow. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Tori Bedford. That story features original music from Simon Mathewson and is part of GBH's series COVID in the Classroom. Now we head to New Hampshire, where teachers and students at Deerfield Community School have been spending a lot of the pandemic learning outside. And as more schools return to class in person, this crew hopes they can stay outdoors. New Hampshire Public Radio's Sarah Gibson has the story.
1: If you walk past the Deerfield Community School into the woods, you come across a scene a bit like a fairy tale. Hello! (laughs) The public school sits on 30 acres of woods with a pond. First graders are sitting near the shore on tree stumps in dappled sunlight working on math assignments. Marilyn Reardon says this is the best kind of classroom. I like nature, I like being outside. When it's chilly, Marilyn and her fellow first graders tend to a fire in the fire pit. You get some wood, put it in the fire, and it feels warm. Seven more outdoor classrooms are scattered throughout the woods community members built them last summer for the pandemic with tens of thousands of dollars in donated labor and supplies across the stream fourth grade teacher sue laskowski shows me hers really
0: we can do everything that we do in the classroom out here so we have a shelter um which is you know a heavy duty tarp we have a fire pit so like a meeting area
1: We bring a whiteboard out so we can do lessons out there. On warm days, they can do nearly all their lessons outside. In the winter, some classes still came out a few hours a day. Laskowski says students are thriving, particularly those who struggle in traditional classrooms. All the things
0: that maybe... Bring them down, you know, whether it's, you know, that they're not up to a level academically. But when they're outside, those kids are like the most helpful kids. They're the hardest working kids. And all of a sudden, everybody's on kind of like an equal equal
1: footing, which is nice. This social benefit of outdoor classrooms is Deerfield's big takeaway from the pandemic. Most students, it turns out, are just as focused and less anxious learning math among the hemlock trees than they are indoors. And during COVID, being so spread out has helped students like fourth grader Matthew Fowler feel safer.
3: Um, Each classroom is far away from others, Plus, after you're learning, you can probably have some recess here.
1: Recess to build forts, draw on birch bark, or clear the leaves from the fire pit. And according to budding scientist Hudson Ronane, age 10, the woods are benefiting too. Hudson says when he breathes out, he's giving the trees his carbon dioxide.
3: What happens is when the
9: trees get the CO2, they take the carbon off of the O2, they release the O2, And attach this carbon that's left over to their skin so that they can become bigger.
1: These students just started coming to school five days a week after being in a hybrid model where they rotated in small groups between in-person and virtual school. For Laskowski's fourth grade, this means there are now 17, not nine kids, in class every day. Laskowski says at first it was a shock, but then they went outside. Literally, as soon as we walked out to the outdoor classroom, spread out, everybody,
0: it was almost like they just kind of like heaved a sigh of relief. They're like, this is better.
1: And relief is a thing everyone here could use after a year of stress and unknowns. The school says it hopes to return to normal soon, but they plan to keep the outdoor classroom for years to come. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sarah Gibson.
2: Even as the number of clinics that offer the COVID 19 vaccine has grown, some people in Maine are still facing challenges getting access. Sometimes the barrier is no internet connection, sometimes it's finding a ride. And for some communities, it's miles of ocean. Residents of Maine's islands face unique hurdles in efforts to get vaccinated. But as Maine Public Radio's Patty White reports, a nonprofit in the state is bringing doses out to them. As the mailboat to the Cranberry Islands pulls
6: away from the dock at Northeast Harbor on a recent morning, it carries a stack of packages for island residents. But on this particular morning, there's another piece of especially precious cargo. It's a Styrofoam cooler, nestled into a reusable shopping bag. Sharon Daly drapes a protective arm over the top and constantly checks a device that resembles an iPhone. It's actually a thermometer, because the cooler contains 50 doses of the Moderna vaccine.
1: This is a new system, so we're just getting used to how much Styrofoam you have to put in between or how much bubble wrap and... um, Some of it's just our anxiety to make sure we're doing it right, so I just keep checking it."
6: Daly is a nurse for the Maine Seacoast Mission, a nonprofit that's been providing services to island communities since 1905. Since late February, she and a small team have been traveling to seven different islands in down east Maine to administer the COVID-19 vaccine. On each trip, time is of the essence. Once the doses are placed in a cooler, they need to be used within 12 hours. The first stop is Islesford, a village on Little Cranberry Island. The mission sets up at a community building in the center of town. Nurse Maureen Giffen is preparing syringes. Okay, so let's see, we have
3: one, two. As Sharon always says, we're injecting hope. So yeah, it doesn't really get better than this. Helping all these folks out on the islands. You can have it right here. I'm going to give this to you in your left arm. Yep. Yay, oh, that
6: that really All adults on the island can get the vaccine. The mission got permission from the state CDC to accelerate eligibility ahead of the rest of the state. Sharon Daly says vaccinating as many people as possible just makes sense for the islands.
1: For one thing, like, you know, some of the islands when it was 70 and over, it was very important to get them vaccinated. But if we came out, it was going to be three people. And it's just not practical.
6: 18-year-old Oliver Blank is among the first to get a dose
5: feels good. Really good to
3: be moving to the other side of the pandemic, being able to put it behind me and not have to worry about it everywhere I go.
6: Though island communities are miles from the mainland, that isolation doesn't feel like a cloak of protection against COVID-19, says Kelly Dixon. She's one of the 60 or so year-round residents on Islesford. In some ways, Dixon says, islanders can feel more vulnerable.
5: You know, everyone's paranoid that if one person comes out here with COVID, then the whole island could end up getting it. That's why 63-year-old Cindy Thomas, the
6: Islesford librarian, is grateful the mission is doing the clinic on the island. Can't thank you enough. This is exciting, huh? It is. I'm so emotional. I want to cry. Staying put means less chance of exposure to the disease. When the pandemic first hit, Thomas says she didn't go off island for 110 days.
1: People don't understand when you get on the boat, that's a small area. And if you've got... 12 people inside there, there's no way you can social distance. So the, the riskiest thing I did during this pandemic was ride the boat.
6: Thomas says this island clinic also eliminates the complication of trying to schedule a
1: vaccine appointment on the mainland. Sometimes the boat is canceled. So say you have your appointment off island and then the wind is really bad and they cancel the boat. Then you have to start all over again trying to get another appointment.
6: Of course, the logistics of bringing the vaccine to islands presents its own challenges. The Maine Seacoast Mission's Director of Island Outreach, Douglas Kornman, says setting up appointments for each resident, pulling together their paperwork, and coordinating travel to islands as far as 20 miles offshore are themselves monumental tasks. Throw weather into the mix, and all that work can be upended.
7: So this trip, I had set everyone's appointments, and then the wind blew 35 knots, and we had to switch the island rotation, so I had to switch everyone's appointments.
6: And switch boats. The strong winds can prevent the mission's own boat, the 75-foot Sunbeam 5, from tying up at the dock. When it's time to leave Islesford for the next clinic on Great Cranberry Island, the team relies on a local lobsterman for a ride. It's 20 degrees out. The winds are blowing 20 miles an hour and kick up waves over the side of the boat. There's no avoiding getting wet. By the time the crew is dropped on shore at Great Cranberry, everyone has frozen fingers. The team thaws out as it sets up at a building that usually serves as a social hub. It's a fitting site for what's likely the biggest social event in a year
3: coming out. Welcome. This is so wonderful.
6: Lauren Gray, a teacher, gets a shot after dismissing her students for the day.
3: It's amazing. It just feels like there's like a light, you know, that even in our small community we haven't been gathering indoors and, you know, out here on the island that makes such a big difference in getting through the winter is being able to go over to people's houses and share a meal on this, you know, rock that's three miles out.
6: Lobsterman Kevin Wedge also comes in for a shot. He says he's not sure how he'd get the vaccine if the Seacoast mission hadn't come to the island.
10: Oh,
5: I think that's great. You know, I mean, it's uh, one of those things where I don't have a vehicle off-island anymore. So if I go off-island and try to get a shot, I've got to hire a taxi or something like that to get to where I could get one.
6: Between the two islands, more than 50 people get the vaccine. The main Seacoast Mission will be back in a few weeks to administer second doses. In the meantime, it'll head to more islands. For the New England News
2: Collaborative, I'm Patty White.
5: Thank you all again. You're welcome.
10: Bye.
2: Latinos have the lowest COVID-19 vaccination rates of any ethnic group in Massachusetts. According to new data released by the state, just 12% of Hispanic residents have received the vaccine, compared to 29% of white residents. The disparity is particularly striking in Chelsea, just outside Boston. Chelsea is a city of Latino immigrants that's been devastated by the coronavirus. WBUR's Simon Rios and Tibisay Saisea from El Planeta newspaper visited Chelsea to understand why so few Latinos have been vaccinated. Tibisay Saisea has our story. At the
8: start of the pandemic, in a bed at Mass General Hospital, Joaquin Lush thought he was dying. <coughs> a year later, in Chelsea, Lush thanks God he survived, but he still doesn't feel the same.
10: Después de que me dio eso, yo no me siento así como estaba antes, porque ahora al caminar mucho o, o al correr un poco, yo me 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 canso.
8: Lush says he now feels tired and struggles to breathe every time he runs even a little. And after watching friends die from the virus, he says he's ready to get vaccinated. But as he walks into a clinic in downtown Chelsea, Lush learns he's still not eligible.
10: At 59,
8: he's not old enough to get the vaccine yet. WBUR and El Planeta helped reveal that Chelsea was the epicenter of the coronavirus in Massachusetts before the state started releasing city-level case numbers. Cases in Chelsea have gone down from their peak this past winter, but now there is another problem. Only 9% of the city's Hispanic residents have been vaccinated. That's compared to 37% of white residents. A lot of that has to do with who's eligible under the state's vaccine rollout. Dinangeli Paulino of the nonprofit La Colaborativa in Chelsea spends her days coordinating help for people recovering from the pandemic. She says a lot more Latinos would have been vaccinated by now if the state hadn't waited so long to let grocery clerks and other essential workers qualify. Why do we have
0: to wait to be a priority? If we are actually making sure that the state is still running,
8: who do you think is actually sending the fruits to the supermarkets to be on your table? Most of them are essential workers. Also, the state vaccination priorities were designed to protect the most vulnerable first, which meant prioritizing seniors. But the senior population skews heavily white, so fewer Latinos qualify based on their age. Another factor preventing some people from getting vaccinated is fear. Elida Acuña-Martinez is a medical interpreter for East Boston Neighborhood Health Center, which runs a vaccination clinic in Chelsea. As she works with Spanish-speaking patients, she has noticed most of them are coming in with doubt. They are believing that the vaccine is not safe, that
1: people have died from it, that um, there are... Uh,
8: Material in the vaccine, and that's against the religion because they're against abortion. A recent poll found 37% of Latinos nationally said they would not get the vaccine, which is significantly more than other groups. Among those skeptical of the vaccine is Suyapa Perez, who practices natural medicine out of her home in Sagos. She lived in Chelsea for more than 20 years. With this She says people in the community are not getting answers to the most basic questions about the vaccine, like whether they can get infected again or stop wearing masks. And without answers, Perez says she won't get the vaccine. Massachusetts is trying to address those concerns, and the state has invested 2.5 million in a campaign to persuade residents in multiple languages that the vaccine is safe.
7: Raza y etnias han recibido sus vacunas y solo han experimentado efectos secundarios leves. Yo me vacuné para protegerme a mí, a mi my familia y a mis pacientes.
8: Cuando le toque a usted, confíe en las pruebas. Vacúnese. A doctor says in Spanish that millions of people have received the vaccine and the only side effects were mild. Activists in Chelsea say to really make a difference, that kind of outreach needs to happen on people's doorsteps. And one local nonprofit tried to do just that. Last weekend, staff from La Colaborativa and more than a dozen doctors knocked on people's doors to address their concerns. The biggest question, when could they get vaccinated?
2: That was T. B. Saisea from El Planeta newspaper. She reported that story along with WBUR's Simone Rios. After the break, Massachusetts has a new climate bill. We'll hear about that and how it compares to climate policies in other New England states. It's next.
0: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, Who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York.
2: Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. Massachusetts just passed big climate legislation that aims to cut carbon emissions, build a greener economy, and prioritize environmental justice. It joins two other New England states. Maine passed broad climate legislation in 2019. Vermont followed in 2020. Joining us to talk through the news in Massachusetts and compare state-level environmental action across the region is Miriam Wasser from WBUR and New Hampshire Public Radio's Annie Ropeek. Okay, so first, the Massachusetts News, Miriam, what are the big things people should know about the state's new legislation? So
11: Massachusetts has had a goal of getting to net zero emissions by 2050 for a while, and this codifies that into law and establishes some interim targets that we need to hit along the way. In addition to those overall targets, it says that the state needs to meet some emission reduction goals every five years for six so-called high-priority sectors and these are things like transportation residential housing natural gas distribution it increases the amount of renewable energy that utilities need to purchase and deliver to your home every year so starting in 2025 they will need to buy three percent more renewable energy every year related to that. The law nearly doubles the amount of offshore wind that utilities have to purchase. And last but not least, it writes environmental justice definitions and provisions into law for the first time in our state history.
2: Annie, as you're listening to Miriam describe this bill, what strikes you about how it compares to climate legislation in, say, Maine and Vermont?
7: I think the most important thing is that it's binding. And so that's, you know, always the key with these kinds of programs is, can you sue to enforce them? What happens if the state doesn't meet them? And so Mass now has, you know, a law that says, if we don't get to these benchmarks, you know, that's a violation of state statute. And those are that's the same for Maine and Vermont's rules um, that were recently passed. They are both looking at trying to get to an 80% emissions reduction by 2050. Those are sort of over different kinds of benchmarks, like Vermont's is sort of the sliding scale, which is interesting. And They both set up, you know, these state climate councils that are going to kind of try to figure out how they're going to get there. So it's a little bit less built into the law than Massachusetts is. Maine specifically targets solar growth, energy efficiency. They also specifically increased their renewable energy usage as part of this to 100 percent by 2050. But I think Massachusetts has taken a pretty prescriptive approach. And part of that is probably because they had the sort of non-binding, like more vague version of this for a long time. And this is sort of the next step, whereas, you know, states like Maine and Vermont kind of jumped in right at the front of that process instead of building on existing similar legislation.
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about New England is there's kind of like these tiers. There's these three states that we've talked about that have passed major climate legislation. And then there are the remaining New England states, Annie, of Connecticut, Rhode Island and New Hampshire. What's going on in those states?
7: So these just have sort of less binding targets, and like you said, there are shades of that. I mean... Connecticut and Rhode Island both also have an 80% by 2050 target. And New Hampshire doesn't really have much of a goal at all on the books. I mean, there are programs that take steps to reduce emissions. But um, we don't have one of these big, you know, climate targets like you hear about in these other states and the Paris Accords on the books in New Hampshire. And we also have the least aggressive sort of smaller scale programs around things like renewable energy of any state in the region.
2: Miriam. You mentioned earlier environmental justice. That's one major aspect of the climate legislation in Massachusetts um, are these particular provisions. And, and why is this a big deal?
11: Yeah. Environmental justice policy in Massachusetts has traditionally always been done through executive order, which has meant that it's subject to change with every new administration that comes in. So, Getting environmental justice definitions and provisions into law has been a goal of activists here for more than two decades. And they did it, right? It's it's in law now, and this is a huge, huge deal. So we have a new definition of what constitutes an environmental justice community, and it is based on uh, criteria like income, race, and English language proficiency. And I think most notably it's going to fundamentally change the way that the state reviews new projects. So whether those be like a new power plant or a new big mixed-use housing development. In the past, when the state has been reviewing a project like this, it has looked at the specific emissions from that one project and said like, new power plant, are you going to exceed our state air quality rules? And they didn't have to take into account like what else exists around this new development. Now they're going to have to do that.
2: When one New England state makes moves on climate change, like Massachusetts just did, do we have a sense of, does it have an impact on the region? Like, have we seen that happen with legislation passed in Maine or Vermont?
7: We absolutely have. I mean, we have a regional economy. So one big policy like this in any one state is going to have huge ripple effects in all the neighboring states. So there's so many examples of this. Efforts to grow the solar industry in Maine, for example. I have been told by solar companies that Uh, work in both Maine and New Hampshire that they've been totally kept afloat by that growth in Maine during the pandemic, while their business in New Hampshire has been totally stagnant because our solar goals are so low and are not growing. And they also, you know, can have negative effects. I mean, it can pull jobs away from a state when one state invests more in something like solar. A company takes that as a signal that they should go there instead of in the state that isn't as excited about it. And that has effects as well.
2: That was New Hampshire Public Radio's Annie Ropeek and WBUR's Miriam Wasser. They're both environmental reporters in the New England News Collaborative. You've probably seen the news that General Motors said by 2035, it will only sell electric vehicles. A few other automakers followed suit, saying they would electrify particular models. If you already own an electric vehicle, we want to hear from you. What do you like about it? anything that can be improved? Leave a comment at 860-275-7595. Again, that's 860-275-7595. You can also email us at next at ctpublic.org. One more time, that's next at ctpublic.org. And thank you. Our next guest is Jennifer DeLeon. She's an author and assistant professor of creative writing at Framingham State University in Massachusetts, and she's got a new book out. It's called White Space, Essays on Culture, Race, and Writing. Jen, thank you so much for coming back on Next.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Now, Jen, when we last spoke last year after your young adult novel, Don't Ask Me Where I'm From, had come out. You shared parts of your own personal story of being Latina, going to a mostly white school, and feeling like you didn't fully belong in that space or even with your own family. Now, today I want to focus on the essays in this new book that are about you reconnecting with your Guatemalan roots. Um, And based on your essays, it seems like growing up, you felt like you needed to push away from that a bit, especially in school, and that you started speaking more and more English instead of Spanish. Can you talk about was there a part of you that was actively resisting speaking Spanish?
4: That's an interesting question. I think I actually wanted to speak Spanish well, but when I was growing up, you know, I, I was speaking in Spanglish and then I spoke it less and less. So What I think I was craving was to have a voice in the Spanish language the way I did in the English language. But, you know, for better or for worse, every time I would make a mistake, my family, my cousins, my aunts and uncles would would kind of joke. and, and, And so I think even though they were not trying to be malicious in that, it kind of made me... Retract from from taking those risks in Spanish, and then it was just a spiral effect,
2: yeah, when did you feel a shift where you felt like okay it 's really important to me to not only like improve my Spanish but also to reconnect with you know that part of my heritage
4: I mean, I think on some level when I was going through high school and college and, and even part of graduate school. I was in this mode of survival and assimilation, just wanting to fit in. And it wasn't until my mid-20s where I realized that I really wanted to dig deep and go to my parents' homeland and learn more about their stories. And so then the the quest became figuring out, okay, how, how do I do it? How do I move to Guatemala and and work on my novel and get my parents' support. And, you know, that just kind of took off from there.
2: Yeah, I want to talk more about that. But first, I'm wondering if you could read your essay called The Story of the Letter from My Father, because in some ways there's this parallel of your father yearning for Guatemala and then you taking this journey.
4: Yes, yes. So this is the story of the letter from my father. I have told this story before, how when I was in ninth grade, my father ran away from home. How one frostbitten New England morning, he climbed into his gray Toyota, the one whose passenger door didn't open from the outside, and drove toward Guatemala. I tell this story when I'm giving readings or lectures or talks at schools, libraries, bookstores, or universities even to my own students. I notice how people stop fidgeting and put down their phones. The energy shifts, it settles, the audience is in. I tell them how my father left a letter from my mother on their bedroom bureau, telling her he was done with America, that he was tired, that he was leaving us, going back home to Guatemala. He had written the note on a piece of my pink paper. I describe how initially, I was bothered that he had used my Lisa Frank neon notebook without my permission. Someone in the audience usually laughs, for which I am thankful. I explain that week I went about my 14-year-old life as usual, volleyball practice, hanging out with my boyfriend, babysitting, all while my mother had hushed conversations on the telephone behind closed doors. I explain how somewhere around Washington, D.C., my father turned back, how one Friday night, when I was on my way out the front door, going to the mall with my friends or off to babysit, I don't remember, my younger sister was watching cartoons in the family room, and beside her sat my father, still wearing his coat, tears streaming down his face. At this point, a lady in the audience usually covers her mouth with one hand. I then say how my family and I never talked about this tear in the fabric. This rip in the seam, ever. It was as if it hadn't happened, as if my father had not momentarily chosen a country over his family.
2: So this is a story about you telling the story. And I I find that like as an interesting framing, especially because you say you and your family have never talked about this.
4: Yeah, it's, (laughs) we haven't. And it's there on, on paper now in a book and the irony of all of it is that it's brought me closer to my father, you know. And I think that for him, it's brought him closer to me. But you know, I don't, I don't um, blame him or I don't resent him. I'm not mad at him at all. It, if anything, I, um, I have seen him be homesick for his country for for now over four decades, and. It's something that I am curious about.
2: Mother Tongue, it's one of your final essays in this book, and it begins with this incredibly sweet moment where you're lifting your two-year-old son out of his crib at six in the morning. Can you describe that moment?
4: Yes. So at this time, we had one son, and this one particular morning, he said, you know, I want meatballs. And we heard him through the monitor, and I went into his room And he just kept saying that, I want meatballs. And I thought it was cute and funny. And when I lifted him out of his crib, you know, I said, you want meatballs? And he said, si. And it's these moments where he would pop up and speak in Spanish. It would break my heart and put it back together again. You know, it was like, how is he speaking Spanish? I just love that he is. For some reason, that moment, it just got me thinking about language and how it evolves and we evolve and how we can lose parts of it but then our deepest deepest at our deepest core we're connected to emotions and memories and feelings in a specific language and we can't choose that so anyway i i, I love that essay in particular because it's just kind of a meditation on on language itself
2: yeah Yeah, I really enjoyed that essay and all the essays in your book. Jennifer DeLeon's new book is called White Space, Essays on Culture, Race, and Writing. She's an assistant professor of creative writing at Framingham State University in Massachusetts. Jen, thank you for coming back on Next.
4: Thank you so much. This was great.
2: Coming up, a musician had to close his recording studio because of the pandemic. But then he had an epiphany going forward, he would only make music that matched his values. It's next.
0: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage. Including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy.
2: Okay, we're back. Last week we had a story about a Massachusetts musician who's struggling financially. She is not alone. Massachusetts artists have lost millions of dollars collectively during the pandemic. So today we have the story of a musician who was forced to close his recording studio. But out of that came an epiphany. And since then, he's completely changed his business. WBUR's Amelia Mason introduces us.
12: The producer and musician International Show works out of a recording studio tucked at the back of a hidden storefront in Weymouth. It isn't glamorous, but it has everything he needs. A mixing console, recording booth, a little electric piano. This is the place where Sho, whose given name is Roy Steadmeyer, makes his living, recording music, mixing tracks, making beats to license and sell. It's also where he records his own music, hip-hop inspired by his Christian faith. It's a Wednesday afternoon in March, and Sho is at the studio, as usual. Every few minutes, his phone lights up with a text from a client. Business is picking up it's nothing like it was before. He casts his mind back to last March, when the pandemic forced him to
10: shut down. The studio was closed for a few months.
12: He was able to reopen in June, but he worried about accidentally exposing his young son to the virus.
10: Elizabeth's mom most, most of the time because, you know, she works from home. That's kind of been one of the hardest parts, like not being able to see him as much as I usually do.
12: And then, about six months ago, just as hope for a vaccine began to glimmer and show's business began to write itself, he decided it was time to make a change.
10: You know, I was just meditating one day and just, it really kind of just hit me. People were dying, you know? Like, <laughs> I've had friends that passed away and you know, my church always has like multiple funerals throughout the week. So I wanted to get behind and stand behind music that promotes a good emotion and has a positive outcome.
12: Sho describes himself as a Christian hip-hop artist, but as a producer and engineer, he's always worked with anyone who asked. The pandemic changed all that. He wanted to only produce work in line with his values, which meant pivoting his business to the Christian music market.
10: And this is where the faith part comes, because it's a really big step of faith. You know, like, it's not like just something that I just talk about. Oh, I have faith. Like I really like stretch and exercise and take giant leaps at a time because in my mind I see such a big vision. For me the studio has evolved into just more than coming in and recording people and, you know, producing and it's it's become a place a safe haven and a place of, you know, healing and emotion.
12: That change came with a price. Cho gave up most of his existing clients and now estimates he makes about half as much money as he used to. He also owes his landlord thousands of dollars in rent from when the studio shut down.
10: That's something that, you know, a lot of people from the outside in don't see. Like, they might see, you know, the studio looks good, but in the back of my mind, it's still, still a tab that needs to be paid.
12: But Cho says it's worth it. The pandemic has been tough on his business, but it delivered an unexpected gift clarity about who he is and how he wants to move in the world. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Amelia
2: Mason. My favorite
10: show is been, what you see, what he did. That story
2: is part of a series called The Creative Grind from the Artery at WBUR in Boston.
10: I came from the mud, your boy from an orphan is. I came from the heat, bracing the cold, felt like an alien. I couldn't handle it. Y'all don't know the half of it. Shout Shou to mom, shouted to Pops, I was adapted in. All that I am and now that four K like a beast
2: screen. We've lost family members, friends, and neighbors to COVID nineteen. We end the show with a remembrance of one of many New Englanders who have died. Vermont Public Radio's Anna Van Dyne has the story of neighbors, missing neighbors. Kathy Pratt lives on Airport Road in Faceton in the Mad River Valley.
13: Donald Alter lived across the road from her for the past 20 years. Yeah, we had like the
5: the typical, lovely neighbor experience. Hey, I'm in Burlington. I I might not have unplugged my coffee maker. Could you go check? Especially in Vermont's small towns,
13: neighbors depend on each other. Whether an acquaintance or a friend— They're the people who come over during power outages and help look for the dog when she runs off. Hey,
5: you're, you know, I got to get my snow tires, rides, things like that. You know, hey, I'm at Costco. What can I pick up for you?
13: Kathy and Don used to go for walks together down the dirt road. Occasionally, they'd watch movies. Once, he took her on a motorcycle ride. He was kind to her son.
5: So it was a, it was pretty intimate that way. You know, we didn't hang out socially, really. We went to a few gatherings with him, but we didn't, we weren't social friends like that.
13: Alex Klein and her sister, Devin Klein-Corrigan, weren't related to Don either, but they loved him too. He was their dad's best friend. Alex can still picture the two of them together.
5: Donnie would usually have like a denim flat shirt and a leather vest. He used to ride Harleys a lot, um, so he always had that kind of, like, slight Harley look to him. And my dad was probably sitting in, like, a pink polo shirt, Um, both of them sitting there probably with, like, a margarita, hanging out, watching the sunset.
13: Don was a classic Mad River Valley guy. He loved sunshine and reggae. He'd been in the military and had worked in photography. He was into both Eastern spirituality and Harley Davidsons. His house in Faistin was full of plants. He was tall, with broad shoulders, long arms and legs. He had a deep voice that Devin says he used to make people laugh.
5: You know, he was at every family holiday. He was at every single one of my birthdays from the time I was 14 until um, he missed the last two. So 35. But he was... um, Absolutely an integral part in what, you know, my experience of community and family was growing up
11: here.
13: Don was ill in the last several months of his life. Then, last spring, he got COVID-19. He grew sicker and sicker. Devin called him weekly, even when he was hardly able to respond.
5: I just remember sort of yelling into the phone, It's Devin! I love you. And uh, finally, at one point, he said, Oh, Debbie, I love you too.
13: That was their last conversation. Don Alter died on April 12, 2020. He was 81.
5: I hated that he was alone when he died. I hated that.
13: Don's neighbor, Kathy Pratt, watched the ambulance pull away the last time Don left his house. After she found out he wouldn't be coming back, she told Don's brother, who lives in Virginia, that she could clean out the house. She and her son spent the summer and part of the fall across the street.
5: You know, we literally were going through all of his belongings and putting it in boxes for his brother or um, to give away. Alex got some of Don's
13: houseplants. An aloe, a jade, and a Christmas cactus. Devon has a ring Don gave her. She never takes it off. For Kathy, cleaning out Don's house was a way of saying goodbye to her neighbor of twenty years.
5: You know, they're not your family, but then um, you realize, well, they kind of are, even more so, because you're you see them all the time. I've never had this sort of a neighborly friendship uh, like that. But um, hopefully it will happen again.
13: New neighbors moved into Don's house last month. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Anna Van Dyne. And
2: that's our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer, and Lily Tyson. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski The music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, just visit our show page at nextnewengland.com. Org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Public's Radio.